Well, if you keep your Bibles open to uh, Mark chapter 11 there, if you're new with us, we've been working our way through the book. We just preach expositionally here, just trying to work our way through uh, a book, text by text, to understand it in its context. I want to say as I'm starting this morning that um, I just want to acknowledge uh, my pastor in Australia. Uh, When I was in seminary, I first heard him, uh, when I heard him preach on this years ago, he really opened my eyes to how this text kind of works. And I also want to acknowledge Paul Reese, our former pastor, who I'll be gleaning from a sermon he preached on this years ago. Have you, uh, have you ever been to a movie where uh, it started out really great, seemed to have a plot line, it was going somewhere, seemed kind of exciting, and then right towards the end it took kind of a weird turn and it got confusing and you kind of left the theater scratching your head thinking, what, what was that about? I'm trying to figure it out. I, I tried to think of a specific movie this morning. I know I've come out of movies like that. Uh, if you can think of one, please tell me. I'll use it next time I preach on this passage. Um, but I bring that up because that's kind of the way this text is this morning, right? It starts with the beautiful and the familiar. It starts with the triumphal entry scene. Jesus finally reaches Jerusalem, and there's kind of this coronation moment, and there's shouts of blessing and praise, it's a scene that's recorded all, in all the Gospels. It makes sense. We know it well. It's exciting. And then the passage, as we read on, suddenly takes this kind of weird, strange turn where Jesus starts cursing this poor fig tree. And then he's talking about if you just have enough faith, you can move mountains. And then forgiving people. And it's all in one breath. And then it ends. And you kind of scratch your head. As a reader, you kind of get a little lost. You feel like, what happened? As a, as a, as a preacher, you're, you feel like your outline's been totally messed up for the sermon. What am I going to do with that? And when you read the commentaries, nobody likes this ending, especially the part about Jesus' interaction with the fig tree. One uh, famous uh, New Testament scholar, M.T. Mason, says this about this about this interaction with the fig tree. He says, it's a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expressed in forcing a crop of figs out of season. And as it stands, it's simply incredible. And William Barclay kind of agrees. He says this, the story doesn't seem worthy of Jesus. There seems to be a petulance in it. Jesus, ill-tempered and and petulant. And actually, uh, the famous atheist Bertrand Russell uses this story to kind of discredit Jesus as a a great man of moral character. He, He says this about the incidents. This is a very curious story because it's not the right time for figs, and you really couldn't blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in matters of wisdom or in matters of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. I think I should put Buddha and Socrates above him in those respects. So he uses it to say, look, Jesus isn't so great. And the funny thing is, 
evangelical, conservative uh, teachers like myself, they don't really like this ending either. Not so much for the fig tree part, but the faith part, right? The moving mountains with faith. If you just pray, you can receive. It's a boon for any prosperity gospelers, right? It's just fodder for them. And, and you read the verse and think, oh, man, that backs up what they're saying, and I don't like it. So the temptation is to just kind of gloss over it, right? Just focus on the familiar bits, the triumphal entry, and, and the temple cleansing, uh, and move on. But two things, there's two things for us to remember here, two kind of exegetical rules. The first one I learned from uh, Dick Lucas, and that rule is the hard bits are generally the key to unlocking a text. Don't skip over the hard bits. And we've seen that in Mark, right? We saw that. Remember that weird thing about don't put old wine and new wineskins and don't put, uh, or put new wine and old wineskins or it'll burst the skins and then don't show, sew the unshrunk path, patch into the clothing and it bursts and it seemed to be right in the middle of this area. You're like, what's that about? But actually as we looked at that, we saw how it unlocked Jesus coming and breaking the frameworks of the Jews. But remember uh, when uh, Peter, he, he, he can't see correctly spiritually who Jesus is, and then we have that story, that weird story about the blind man being healed in two stages, and we see how it kind of unlocks the whole scene and Peter's spiritual sight. You've got, you got to take a look at the hard bits if you really want to understand. The second exegetical thing to remember is Old Testament background. The reason we have two readings here is we always have an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading, and if you pay attention, you'll note they always relate, that that Old Testament is the background to the New Testament section. There are over eight New Testament texts being alluded to, Old Testament texts being alluded to in this section of Mark, and I think four are specific prophecies being fulfilled. So we need to make sure we understand those. If we remember both those rules, I think this text will open up for us this morning. Okay, so uh, let's, let's work through it. Our text opens in verse 1 with the triumphal entry scene. And in it we see Jesus making something very clear, and that's point one this morning. This is what you can't miss in this first scene, and that is that Jesus is... Savior King. He is displaying himself as the Savior King. Up to this point in Mark, there has been no clear declaration of this. It, it, it's kind of happened in the action, right? I mean, Mark has shown Jesus, you know, showing kingly power because he's calming storms and he's uh, casting out demons, right? And he's healing leprosy. He has this power of God's King. We see him wielding his sovereignty um, in his words, in his authoritative teaching. We see him having sovereignty over the Sabbath. So we see him acting like this king. But here, as he comes to Jerusalem at the end of this long journey, just in time for Passover, he makes his first open declaration that he is indeed the Messiah king that they've all been waiting for. And how does he do it? How does he make this statement just totally clear? 
Well, read verse 1. Now, when they drew near to to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent out two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. So how does he do it? He does it with a donkey. It's not, it's not a mistake that Jesus asked them to go get this donkey. It's not like it's Passover and it's really busy because there's hundreds of thousands of people coming in and they couldn't get a horse or a camel. They were all taken, but he knows where a donkey is. No, no, this is Jesus making his statement. As you read the details of the text, you see that he, he plans the whole thing. He tells them exactly where to go, where to get it, what to say, what to do. He's in complete control. He could have gotten any animal he wanted. Now, of course, for us, this is all wrong. If you want to make a statement of kingly power, this is completely wrong. This isn't how you do it. If you want to make a statement of power today, we say, well, you come in power, don't you? That's how you do it. How do our great leaders show up today? Right? Well, there's probably a giant motorcade with, you know, hundreds of security forces around it, motorcycles with flashing lights riding in front of it, and, you know, air support over the top, ready to take anybody out who's a threat. Power! And back then, how did kings do it? Well, it meant riding into the city on your war horse with hundreds of your mighty men in front of you holding their swords in the air and trailing behind you a display of your conquered kings and princes and chains from your recent military campaign so that all would fear you. That's how you did it. But Jesus just needs a donkey. And we don't get this. It makes no sense to us because we don't know our old Testaments. It's not that the, the prophecies of the Old Testament aren't just in our minds and hearts as they would be to a Jew who had memorized them and meditated on them. So we don't recognize that Jesus is directly fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. Over 500 years before this moment, Zechariah had prophesied that the Messiah would come on the foal of a donkey. This is what it says in Zechariah Nine. And I want to say, you might want to keep your, you might want to actually flip back there, because we're going to look at Zechariah a bit this morning. Put your finger, it's not far back in your Bibles, because it's at the end of the Old Testament, so it's just a little bit back. Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10, let me read it. Talking about the coming of the Messianic King, says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the, ch- the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bull shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And get this his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. When Jesus comes in on this donkey, every Jew knows exactly what he's saying. He's saying, that is me. 
I am God's King Messiah who has come to bring righteousness and salvation and peace. To who? Who did it say in the text? To the whole world. And Christians, we know the story. We know how this happens because we know the rest of the story. We know that by the end of this week, this Passover week in which he's entered Jerusalem, Jesus will be lifted up on a cross to bear the sins of the world as the ultimate Passover lamb. To free us from Satan, to to conquer death, to put us at peace with God and win us life. Our Savior King doesn't ride a war horse to a castle He rides a donkey to a cross and is exalted to his throne in his death. And we need to pause and just reflect on that for a moment. As Christians, I think American Christians, we have a tendency to get caught up in war horse Christianity, motorcade Christianity. We're constantly trying to advance Jesus' kingdom through power, and people power, political power, majority might. I'm often asked as a pastor to you know, support movements and join organizations where the thinking is, if we just get enough Christians together to vote or to protest, we'll be powerful, and then people will have to listen because we hold the power. So then we can affect change for the kingdom of God. No, that is not the way of our Savior, and it's not to be ours. This doesn't mean, I'm not saying that we we aren't to be involved as responsible citizens, involved in shaping our government and active in society, but we need to know that our hope is not there. Not one heart will ever be changed by that strategy. Our king rides a donkey. Now, Note what happens in the rest of this section. Look at verse 7 with me. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. People seem to recognize, at least at some level, what Jesus is doing, who he is. And according to the Gospels, if you read all the other accounts, every Gospel talks about this, so there's lots of information. There are literally thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem for the Passover, and thousands of them are coming out. Jesus is out at Bethany about two miles away, and thousands of them are coming out along the road. They've heard about Jesus. In John, it talks about how they've heard about his raising of Lazarus that was just happening. That was a buzz in the crowd. Everybody wanted to see him. And they come out, and they're cutting palm branches, and they're literally making this gauntlet of palm branches all the way in to Jerusalem. And they're traveling behind him and in front of him here, singing Hosanna, which means save us. Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, save us. This is going back and forth in the crowd as he's approaching Jerusalem. It's a messianic frenzy like 
they've never really seen. In fact, in the Gospel of John, they tell us that the, the Pharisees see this, and their comment is, look, the whole world is going after him. That's how it looks to them, and it freaks them out. And then Jesus, surrounded in this entourage of praise, arrives at the temple. He's finally got there where the Pharisees who are against him are. There they are. And what happens? What happens? You notice in the text? It's pretty exciting. Let's read it. Verse 11, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. A little anticlimactic, isn't it? He gets there. He looks around at everything. It's late at night. Jesus is probably a bit tired. He assesses the situation and he says, Hey guys, let's head back to our lodging. It's about a mile and a half out of the city and sleep for the night. And then we have the next morning. And we have the fig tree situation. And in this scene, we learn the second thing about Jesus' identity. And that is, he's not just the Savior King. He comes as sanctifying judge. The Savior King comes as a sanctifying judge. He brings judgment this is part of how he saves, you know, by destroying sin and evil. And he starts where? He starts with the household of God. He starts with the temple. Now, in this scene with the fig tree and the temple and everything, we need to understand the, the Markin sandwich. We've seen this structure before where Mark's has a teaching style where he sandwiches his material. So you see in verses 12 to 14, he talks about the fig tree and the cursing of the fig tree. And then in the next section, he talks about the cleansing of the temple. And then back in verse 20, he's back to the fig tree and it being cursed. And the whole thing is kind of like bread, meat, bread. It needs to be digested together to get the point. He did this with the Jarius story, you remember? Jarius, right in the middle of the story, the woman with the issue of blood arrives. Go through that whole story, and you're back to the Jarius story. And the two are meant to be understood together. He did this with Peter, finally getting spiritual sight. Peter doesn't understand. He heals the blind man in two stages, and then we're back to Peter, and he suddenly has spiritual sight. The men are they're supposed to be understood together. The fig tree and the temple cleansing are one lesson. So look at verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus sees this fig tree in the distance and it's leafy and, and green, full of, of promising foliage. And, and according to, to scholars, what we need to understand is that the figs tended to grow in tandem with the leaves. If you saw big green leaves, there would be some fig there. 
It might be at various stages of growth, and I guess the Jews ate it at all different stages. They ate it when it was green, they ate it when it was full. And so it wasn't unreasonable for Jesus to expect that there would be some figs because it was full of green leaves. But when he gets up close to this tree and he sees all the green leaves, but there's no fruit at all. So he curses the tree. Now, if that was the only story here, you would think, wow, that's kind of ill-tempered. But it's not a standalone story. In fact, it's a symbolic lesson. That's why it says, and the disciples heard it. It's for them first. Because he then immediately goes to the temple, doesn't he? The beautiful, grandiose temple with its great altar and its concentric courts of holiness and priests and rituals and sacrifices, all the religious foliage, if you will, all the green leaves. The true household of God that is supposed to be ground zero for real worship, for real praise, for real prayer, for real witness. The fruit is supposed to be there, if anywhere. And by the way, Israel, the image of Israel in the Old Testament was often a fig tree. But what does he find? What does he find there? A lot of fruit, a lot of praise, a lot of worship? No, he finds a marketplace. The priests have figured out how to bake a nifty prophet selling animals for sacrifice. Everybody had to travel. They didn't want to drag that, you know, lamb with them the whole way. If they brought the bird the whole way, it'd probably die on the trip. So they figured, hey, we can sell them, and we can sell them for a profit. And on top of that, they have to change their coins over to temple currency so they don't bring those pagan coins into our sacred space, and we can tax that. So the outer court, the court that was supposed to be the place for the nations to come and pray and, 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 and be witnessed to by the true worship of God and his people, has become a market for vendors and stalls and haggling. Basically, the marketplace that was out on the streets around the temple has just invaded right in. And there's no real worship going on. Yes, they had all the external rituals, the legal ceremony. It was Passover. They were making sacrifice after sacrifice, but their hearts were far from God. And Jesus is filled with righteous anger, and he starts chucking over tables and driving people out. And we get to verse 17, and I love this. What does it say? And he was teaching them. That's how he's teaching them. Interesting teaching method, just knocking over everything, driving people out. He's saying something, isn't he? And saying to them as he's doing it, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting, again, they know this Old Testament text. He's quoting Jeremiah, Jeremiah 7, 9, where Israel is really a fraud. They've come to the temple, they come and worship, but they're not living it out in their lives at all. Let me read a little bit from the context there. 
says, why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. Everyone turns to his own course. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us, but behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie? When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Chapter 7, verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? They are robbing God of his deserved worship. And Jesus is bringing his judgment like the curse on that fruitless tree. Make no doubt, no doubt, it is judgment on this temple. Next day they will find that tree withered away. And guess what? It won't be long before that temple will be completely destroyed to never rise again. This should catch our attention. Jesus, our Savior King, who comes as sanctifying judge, hates false, fruitless religion. Religion that looks good on the outside, has the appearance of fruit, because you observe all the rituals, like, like the people in Jeremiah saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We can observe all the rituals, right? Coming to this beautiful building with stained glass, singing the right songs, saying the right prayers and confessions, giving our offering regularly, all the religious activity. And, 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 and they, they would feel quite good about themselves. Surely God was pleased. But the truth is, the world had invaded right into their souls, into their services, and it can happen today. So that God is, is being robbed of the sacrifice of true worship in your life and our lives. He sees right through it. He sees through it in our body. He sees through it in, in your life, in my life. Remember those churches in the book of Revelation? That was our, our last series. What was amazing about that and when you saw those churches is it pictured Jesus standing with the churches right there, holding them in his hands. And, and the good news about that is he knew exactly what was going on in their troubles and he was with them. But the bad news about that was he knew exactly their sins as well. And he called them out. He knew that Ephesus had lost their first love, and he said, you better repent. He knew of the sexual immorality in Thyatira. He knew of the Laodiceans and, and their lukewarmness. He calls them to repent. We need to all examine ourselves really honestly. 
You see, when the Savior King shows up to bring his kingdom and save his people, he also comes as sanctifying judge. And who are the first ones judged? His people. Those amongst his people who are caught up in fruitless religion, which is ultimately just a pious way of rejecting God. You can reject God with worldliness. You can reject God with religion. The the, the Pharisees are just a classic example. You look at verse 18 here, right? And the priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Here they are, the ones who run the worship of the temple, and God himself shows up, and they want to destroy him. They are rejecting God with religion. Fruitless, churchy activity, Christian subculture busyness can be such a smokescreen that we can even fool ourselves. It's an insidious form of rejecting God quite often. Jesus came 2,000 years ago as Savior and sanctifying judge, and after conquering sin and death at the cross, he rose to his throne where he now reigns, and the scriptures promise that his first advent, his first coming, guarantees his second. That just as he came, he's coming again to finish the job, to bring in his eternal kingdom once for all, to judge and sanctify this world once for all. And who will be the first to be judged? Just read First Peter 4, the household of God. It's uh, kind of sobering, isn't it? Are we ready? Are you ready? So what should our lives look like in light of that reality? Our Savior, King, sanctifying judge who is reigning now is coming. How should we live? Or as Francis Schaeffer would say, how should we then live? Well, Jesus gives his disciples two instructions. That comes to this weird section at the end, that twist that nobody liked. Right, They're passing by, look at verse 20, they're passing by in the morning the withered fig tree. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. You see what he's saying? He's saying, what you said, Jesus, the judgment that you proclaimed has come true. Look. And Jesus says what? Here's his response. Have faith in God. You know my judgment, you know my kingdom is coming, you know my judgment is coming, have faith in God. Live by faith in him and his promised kingdom. And this looks like two things then. You say, what does that mean, have faith in God? It looks like two things in their lives. First of all, it looks like prayer, expectant kingdom prayer. Look at verse 23 again. Let's just read it. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe, 
and you will receive it. It sounds at first reading like it's just a name it and claim it prayer where I can pray for anything, even moving a mountain, and if I believe hard enough, it will happen. But it's actually about faithful, expectant, thy kingdom come kind of prayer. And we would know this, it would be obvious to us if we knew our Old Testaments better. Turn back to Zechariah, and I want you to turn to this one because it's an important, it's just a little ways back in your Bibles. Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah is prophesying at the end of his book, in this last part, that's why it says, if you, have the, you see the title, the coming day of the Lord. Zechariah is prophesying about the final day when, when the, the king comes, when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom, and uh, when the Son of Man will, will come in glory and reign over the earth, and all the nations will come and worship. And at first, when you read chapter 14, the first couple of verses, doesn't seem to be going very well for the people of God. They seem to be entrapped by their enemy. And then you get to verse 3, and it says this. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount of Olives which shall be split in two from east to west, by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move north, in the other half southward, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Aziel. Zechariah pictures the Lord, the Son of Man, Jesus the Judge, coming with such power that when his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives, he splits it in two, just like he parted the sea and it opens the way for his people to be delivered and saved out of Jerusalem from their enemy. This is the text that Jesus has in mind when he calls them to pray with inspectant faith to move mountains. And if you think I'm stretching it a bit, go back to Mark. And notice this in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to what mountain? This mountain. This mountain. What mountain is he standing on? Read verse 1 of our text if you're not sure. The Mount of Olives. He's not talking about praying about the mountain of your hard situation or the mountain of your relational mess or the mountain of your financial debt or whatever mountain you claim. He's not talking about that. He is talking about the Mount of Olives that will be moved by Jesus when he comes to set up his forever kingdom. He's talking about praying that that will happen, that God's king will come in victory. He's talking about praying Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he's talking about. He's saying to his disciples and to us, you want to have a heart that's ready for God's Savior, King, his sanctifying judge, a heart that's not caught in fruitless religion? Pray with expectant kingdom faith for him to come for him to bring his kingdom. Pray for that every day and believe it because it's going to happen and it will be done. 
for you. You will receive it. Pray in line with that reality. Name that. Claim that. Practice kingdom prayer. That's how you prepare for the sanctifying judge. But the fruitful life of faith is just not, not only a life of expectant prayer. There's something else that he holds up that he thinks is pretty important. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You're saying, Christians, you, you think you have real faith? You want to have faith that, that, that it bears real fruit? There's nothing that's more real fruit of a forgiven Christian than being forgiving. You want to be ready for that sanctifying judge who knows your heart? who's forgiven you everything, be forgiving. Live in complete 360 forgiveness. If there's anything anybody you have against anyone, let it go. Let it go because you know the mercy you've received. If we really get that, if we really understand that, we will honor and worship him in prayer and in forgiveness. He's coming as Savior and Judge. We know He's coming because He's already come and He's promised He's coming back. And He knows our hearts. He's coming like He did to the temple to see real fruit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the hope of our Savior King coming again, but help us know that he is coming as judge and he knows us. Lord, help us believe that. Help us pray every day in expectant prayer, praying for your kingdom to come and live lives of forgiveness like a forgiven people. Pray these things in your son Jesus' powerful name, amen.